Thank you for listening to White Moss Talks. Catch our new episodes every Monday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific. Yo, what is up, you guys? Welcome back to White Moss Talks. It is Monday, August 2nd, 2021. We've got a lot to talk about here today. We're going to kick things off with the Olympics, and more specifically with Simone Biles. And we all know how she withdrew from the all-around competition and through the event finals for the U.S. women's gymnastics team. But it was reported at 2.30 a.m. Pacific time, so early this morning, uh, that she will actually be competing in Tuesday's balance beam final for the Olympics. Uh, that was a report that she later confirmed on Twitter this morning. Uh, she said she's been experiencing, quote, twisties since the team finals last week. Uh, she only competed, remember, in the vault before she withdrew. She had the, I believe it was the lowest score of, his, of her career. It was like a 13 or something like that. Uh, she said she wasn't in the right headspace and she didn't want to continue to hurt her team and cost them the chance at a medal, which I can 100% respect that decision. Not only if she's not in the right headspace, is she going to potentially cost her team a chance at Olympic gold or silver or whatever it was. I think they ended up winning silver in that. Um, but she's also going to put herself at an even greater risk of injury and potentially ending her entire career because of it. Because as an athlete, when you get to that high of a level that you're competing at, 90% of it comes from your mind. So if your mind's not in the right spot, you're not going to be performing those minute little details of your task, of your craft, at the optimal level. And that's when you can have a chance for serious injury. So I do think if she wasn't in the right headspace, that withdrawing from those competitions was not only in the best interest of her team, but also for her personally and for her own safety. But it does obviously sound like she's gotten over that. Uh, if she's re-entering the uh, balance beam finals. So can't wait to watch her compete in that. And hopefully she'll be back at her, back to her usual self. Another big storyline for the U.S. national team in the Olympics, moving over to basketball now, the men's team. Uh, Kevin Durant broke the all-time Olympic scoring record, surpassing Carmelo Anthony in the United States' 119-84 win over the Czech Republic a couple days ago. Uh, he finished with 23 points in the game, pushing him to 354 career points in the Olympics, passing the previous record holder Carmelo Anthony had 336. So congratulations to KD on a monumental accomplishment in his career, the all-time leading Olympic scorer. And it came in a Team USA win, which is more important because that's what allowed our men's national team to clinch a spot in the quarterfinals where we will play against Spain. Spain has looked very solid in these Olympics so far, although they are actually just coming off of a loss in their last group stage game, a 95-87 to Slovenia. Luka Doncic, not only leading Slovenia to their first ever Olympics in the country's history for basketball, but he has them at 3-0 and through the group stage. It finishes the top team in Group C and clinch their own spot in the quarterfinals as well. 
They're now 16-0 and with Luka Doncic leading them on the international stage. That's insane for a team that has never even gone to the Olympics before. I saw somebody said that if Luka is able to lead Slovenia to the gold medal in these Olympics, that it would be the greatest feat, individual feat in all of basketball history. And honestly, I feel like I'd have to agree with that. I mean, obviously, we all know about the impressive championship runs. You have the Lakers who went 15-1 and during the playoffs. You've got LeBron coming back from 3-1 against the 73-win Warriors in the finals. But I just don't think that any of that stacks up against what Luka would be doing if he's able to lead Slovenia to the gold medal here. I mean, look, even when LeBron came back from 3-1, he still had Kyrie Irving and Kevin Love and Iman Shumpert and all those guys around him. Who does Luka Doncic have on the Slovenian national team? He's got Zoran Drogic as the second best player. I mean, no disrespect to Zoran, but there's a reason why he's never been even just a key rotation player in the NBA. So to compare him as a sidekick to a guy like Kyrie Irving is kind of unrealistic. Not only that, but they're also doing this against some very talented teams on the international level. I mean, you've got Spain, who they just beat. They beat Argentina earlier in the group stage. Teams with a lot of current and former NBA talent on them. So I just think it's really impressive what Luka and Slovenia are doing. And honestly, I would like to see them go on, not win gold because America, but I would like to see them go far into the medal stage and even medal in these Olympics. Anyways, moving back home with some basketball-related news to the NBA. The draft happened last week, and as always, there were some obvious moves made, and there were also a lot of surprises. Um, The most notable one for me personally had to have been Sharif Cooper falling all the way to pick 46 or 47, wherever it was he ended up going. Uh, late in the first round, he was a projected top 10 pick in the draft fell all the way to the end of the second round. I do think that the Atlanta Hawks got a steal there, and I'm honestly really excited to see how he pairs with Trey Young in that backcourt and see how well they play off each other. I think that that could be a very exciting duo to watch for years to come. Obviously, we have the Detroit Pistons making the easy pick, drafting Cade Cunningham, number one overall. I think he's definitely a potential franchise changer. He's a kind of talent that they haven't had in years. Uh, honestly, probably going back to the championship teams of the early 2000s when they had guys like Tayshawn Prince and Chauncey Billups there. The Rockets draft Jalen Green at number two from the G League Ignite. He obviously has a very high ceiling on the offensive end of the floor especially, he can inject a lot of talent and scoring into that lineup, which is something they sorely need after finishing with the worst record in the league last year. The Cleveland Cavaliers draft Evan Mobley, number three, the big man from USC. Uh, I think he will be an interesting fit with both Darius Garland and Colin Sexton in the backcourt. It'll be interesting to see how that young core develops. First minor surprise of the night came at number four, Toronto drafting Scotty Barnes. When both Jalen Suggs and Jonathan Kaminga were still on the board. Um, I do feel like he has a lot of versatility, Scotty Barnes does, and he should be an interesting fit either next to Pascal Siakam or if Toronto ultimately decides to move on from Siakam, then he could be a nice building block as a replacement for him. 
Uh, I feel like the best fit in the lottery, though, had to be at number five, the Orlando Magic taking Jalen Suggs. He finally gave them a premier perimeter talent that they've been desperately needing, really, since Hito Turkoglu and Jameer Nelson were there in Orlando back in the run to the finals in that era, early late 2000s, early 2010s. Uh, Suggs has a lot of potential and upside both on the offensive end and the defensive end. Uh, they've got a lot of intriguing young guards now in the perimeter, too. You've got Markel Fultz, a former number one pick. They've got last year's first-round pick, Cole Anthony, in the backcourt. be interesting to see how both of those two guys come back after their injuries they had last season. But I do feel like Jalen Suggs probably has the highest potential on both ends of the floor out of that group. So it'll be interesting to see how that young group develops. Uh, Jonathan Kaminga went number seven to the Warriors. That's definitely a long-term play for them. I think they're trying to hedge against the future. They know that their current core doesn't have a whole lot longer to contend. They're nearing the end of their primes. And Kaminga definitely has the upside to be one of the best players in the league a few years down the road, but he's definitely going to be a project for them. But I don't think there's anywhere else he could have gone that would have been able to develop him better than Golden State. Uh, the Magic, again, at number eight, picked Franz Wagner, one of the best defensive big men in the draft. Pairing him with Jalen Suggs, I got two overall two of the best defenders in this class. So that'll be very interesting to see how that group develops there. I really like the young core they're building. Uh, the Sacramento Kings at number nine, taking Davian Mitchell. This is a pick that I was very happy about as a Kings fan. He's a guy that I wanted them to go after throughout this whole draft process. Uh, the two guard from Baylor is a beast on the defensive end of the court. He's capable of creating his own shot. I really like his fit coming off the bench behind De'Aaron Fox and Tyrese Halliburton. I think that was an excellent pick by the Kings. But I will tell you who I think the biggest loser of this draft was probably has to be the New York Knicks. They trade moved around a bunch of first-round picks in this draft, made a bunch of trades, but I don't feel like they really got any better from any of those trades. I feel like at best it was just lateral move after lateral move. So I was kind of disappointed to see how their night went, especially after the progress they made last season. Um, but we'll see how they do in this next year. I think the biggest storyline coming out of this draft obviously has to be the blockbuster trade Russell Westbrook going to the Los Angeles Lakers. To be completely honest with you, I don't really know about this move from the Lakers' perspective. I definitely feel like the Wizards won this trade. Uh, they get Montrez Harrell, Contavious Caldwell-Pope, Kyle Kuzma, and the number 22 pick in this draft, which they ended up using on... Isaiah Jackson, who they then shipped off to Indiana as part of a separate deal. Uh, but I really like the package they got back. They were never going to contend anyways, whether Russell Westbrook was there or not in these next couple years. So I like the younger players as well as the draft pick, which ended up flipping and getting even more assets for. I think that Kyle Kuzma and Montrezl Harrell are both better fits next to Bradley Beal than Russell Westbrook was ever going to be anyways. And I really don't know that I like this trade from the Lakers' perspective. Obviously, yeah, from an overall pure talent perspective, you get much better with this trade. Russell Westbrook is obviously a more talented player than Kyle Kuzma or Montrezl Harrell or obviously Kendavious Caldwell-Pope. 
But the fit is what concerns me with this trade. I mean, the Lakers just played against Russell Westbrook in the playoffs year before last in the bubble, and were daring him to shoot the ball outside, and he still couldn't hit him, the three ball, which that has already been the Lakers' weakness anyways is the outside shooting. So then you give up some of your younger, more valuable assets for another player who can't even shoot and who is even more ball-dominant than LeBron James is. So I feel like this trade makes them better in the regular season because the overall talent matters more there. But once you get into the playoffs and where fit matters and style of play matters more, I feel like this trade is going to hurt the Lakers more than anything. I mean, as of right now, you have five players under contract next year between Russell Westbrook, LeBron, Anthony Davis, Horton Tucker, and Andre Drummond. If that's our starting five next year... I mean, Anthony Davis is probably the best three-point shooter out of the group, and even he's not elite there. So there's definitely going to be a very concerning lack of spacing in that lineup. Westbrook is going to struggle to get to the rim with the lack of outside shooting, and so is LeBron. Uh, Anthony Davis isn't going to be as effective inside. He's not going to have as much room to operate down there. Andre Drummond was never going to be elite post-score anyways, but he'll have even less room to do what he does now down there. Less room to go up and catch the lobs. So, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see how that ends up working out, but I personally am not a fan of the fit there. I think it's probably going to do more harm than good long-term in the playoffs. And honestly, I think that the Lakers may have just closed their own championship window with this trade, but we'll see. Find me on social media at the underscore white underscore moss and let me know what you think if you agree or disagree with me here. Anyways, changing gears a little bit here, moving on to the world of football. We've finally made it to the NFL season. We survived our last weekend until February without football. There's been plenty of news these last few days to break down. Uh, We'll start out in Indy. As a Colts fan myself, this one pains me a little bit. But Carson Wentz, it was announced this morning, is officially having surgery on his foot injury that he suffered in training camp. He'll be out for the next 5 to 12 weeks, which obviously leaves a big hole at quarterback for the Colts. There's been a lot of names already floating around out there of guys who they could look at as replacements for Wentz. One of those options being Nick Foles. A trade from the Chicago Bears could be worked out. Another one that I've seen is Gardner Minshew from Jacksonville, who's obviously on the outs now that Trevor Lawrence is there, number one pick in this last year's draft. But personally, I feel like the best move for them would be to just stick with what they've got and give Jacob Eason a chance. He's their current backup quarterback. who's was a fourth-round pick in last year's draft out of Washington Unfortunately, because of no preseason last year, he still hasn't gotten a single actual live game NFL rep, but that will obviously change with this year's preseason. Even Frank Reich has already come out and said that he is the starter as of now, but he will still have to earn it. I feel like giving him that chance is probably the best move for Indianapolis. Let him go through the growing pains and see what you've got with him. Plus, you have no incentive to rush Wentz back anyways. Not only do you have him under contract through 2024, which means you don't want to jeopardize his long-term health, 
or your long-term ability to compete for a Super Bowl. Uh, but you also have to factor in the trade that you made with the Philadelphia Eagles in order to get wins. Uh, you gave up a second-round pick in this year's draft in 2022. That turns into a first-round pick if Wentz either plays 75% of the regular season snaps this year or if he plays 70% of the snaps and the Colts make the playoffs. So as of right now, with Wentz projected to come back sometime around week six, that would not allow him to play this full 70% of the regular season snaps. It would be cutting it close. But if he's going to miss five games, then that's more than 30% of the season. So that would keep the pick that you owe Philadelphia as a second rounder rather than a first rounder, which obviously just allows you to add one more, even more talented piece to the roster next year to try and fill a hole that you have. And obviously you'd much rather keep your own first round picks rather than having to owe them to another team especially if this Wentz injury actually affects the Colts' record that they otherwise would have if he was healthy, which in turn would lead to the first-round pick being an even better selection than it otherwise would have been. Obviously, that's a pick that you don't want to give up. You'd much rather give up your second-rounder in that situation. However, I do think overall the roster is talented enough to at least remain competitive while Wentz is out, and we'll see how they play both while he's out with that injury as well as when he comes back we'll see what he's capable of if he's able to make a return to his MVP caliber form or if it's just more the same that we saw from him last year obviously not only how long Wentz is out but also how he plays when he comes back will be a major determination in the overall record that the Colts are able to have this year if he does come back on the earlier side of the projections and plays anything close to his MVP level form, then I could definitely see the Colts winning in the range of 10 to 12 games this year. Otherwise, if he's out for a longer period of time or else if he's looking closer to how he played last year, I feel like the Colts will probably win closer to the range of eight or nine games. But I do still feel like that is probably the floor for the team this season. Obviously, the Titans are going to be good again this year. As long as they've got Derrick Henry there, they're always going to remain competitive and be one of the top contenders for that AFC South regular season championship. I think it's going to be another close fight between both the Titans and the Colts this year for that regular season championship. Uh, the Jaguars and Texans are both going to struggle this year. Obviously, neither of them are very good football teams still. Houston, I could see competing for the worst record in the league again this year. Jacksonville, I think, will take a little bit of a step up with Trevor Lawrence, but it's still going to be a struggle for him in his first year in the league with that lack of talent that he has around him. Uh, moving over to the AFC East, I think, once again, the Bills are obviously the class of that division. I could see them winning in the range of about 13 games or so this year with the new expanded 17-game season. I think 13-14 wins somewhere in that ballpark is a realistic expectation for them. The Dolphins, I could see probably winning around 10-12 to 12 games. The Patriots, I think, will be much more competitive this year than they were a season ago. I could see them winning again around 10-12 to 12 games. And then the Jets are going to be in the league's basement once again this year. I don't think Zach Wilson is going to make that big of an impact in year one. Then moving over to the AFC North, I think it's going to be another tough battle this year. The division is always physical. 
and I don't see this season being any different. I think the Browns and Ravens are going to be neck and neck down the stretch for the division crown. I do feel like Cleveland is probably going to narrowly take it by a game or two at the end of the season, though, leaving the Ravens as a wild card team this year. The Steelers, Bengals, I feel like both of them will probably miss the playoffs this year. Pittsburgh, I definitely think, is going to take a step back this season from what they have been in the past, even just last year. Uh, Cincinnati, though, I feel like is probably going to make noticeable improvements this year. Nothing too crazy to the point where they'll be competing for a playoff spot or anything. But I do think with a healthy Joe Burrow coming back and Jamar Chase coming in, reuniting with him, I do think that offense will make strides this year, and I do feel like they will win more games than they did a year ago. I could see them winning five or six games this season. And finally, for the AFC, looking out west, we have the Chiefs, the reigning, two-time reigning AFC champions. After losing in the Super Bowl to Tampa last year, I think they're going to be out on a revenge tour this year. I could see them winning about 15 games or so this season, probably. Uh, they're obviously, once again, going to be the best team in the AFC West. But I also feel like the Chargers are going to make a noticeable jump this year. I could see them winning in the range of 10 to 12 games and competing for a playoff spot. Uh, Justin Herbert is obviously very talented, as we saw last year. I think he's going to lead a noticeable turnaround from this season compared to last. The Raiders are still the Raiders. They're always going to be a middle-of-the-pack team as long as they have that core there. And then we have the Denver Broncos. I think are once again probably going to be the worst team in that division. I don't think they're going to be bad. I could see them winning about seven or eight games this year. But the AFC West is going to be a loaded division this season. And I think seven wins even is still only going to be good for last place in that division. I'm moving on to the NFC side of things. We'll start with the NFC East. The always terrible NFC East. Uh, I could see realistically see... The winner of this division having a losing record during the regular season once again, uh, finishing below 500. I feel like the Cowboys, with a healthy Dak Prescott coming back, will definitely be much better than they were a season ago. I could see them winning in the ballpark of eight to nine games this year. It would be my realistic prediction. Washington, I feel like seven to nine games is probably a good prediction for them. The Giants, I think, will be better this year with Saquon Barkley coming back, but I still don't see them winning more than about seven or eight games at most. And then the Eagles will probably be the worst team in that division again this year. I could see them winning maybe three or four games this season as they just really don't have a whole lot of marquee talent on that roster. Um, moving on, NFC North, the Packers... It's official. Aaron Rodgers is back. He's staying. He will be playing in Green Bay this year. That obviously instantly catapults the Packers into Super Bowl contention. I think somewhere in the ballpark of 11 to 12 wins is realistic for them this year. Uh, the Vikings are the clear second best team in that division. I can see them winning somewhere around 8 to 10 games. You got the Chicago Bears. Currently starting Nick Foles. I, this is my prediction for the Chicago Bears this year. I genuinely do think that they are going to move over to Justin Fields at some point during this season as their starter. It could be as early as week three or four. It could be as late as week 15. 
Um, but I do think that at some point this year they are going to start Justin Fields, and I think they he is going to make a noticeable impact and a noticeable improvement on that team. But that being said, for this year, I don't see Chicago winning more than seven or eight games. And then we've got the Detroit Lions. Uh, Jared Goff, their new quarterback, after the blockbuster Matthew Stafford trade during the offseason with the Rams. I, I feel like Jared Goff will do better this year than people think he will be, but I still don't see the Lions winning more than about five or six games this coming season. On the NFC South, we've got the reigning Super Bowl champion, Tampa Bay Buccaneers. They're obviously going to be good once again this year, returning all 22 starters from last year's Super Bowl team. I can see them realistically winning in the ballpark of anywhere from 12 to 15 games this year, I think is realistic for them. The Saints, the New Orleans Saints, year one post Drew Brees, got Jameis Winston as the starter. I can see them winning nine or 10 games, I think is probably a pretty fair assessment of that team this year. I got the Atlanta Falcons trading away Julio Jones to the Titans this offseason. You still got Calvin Ridley as your number one receiver there, but without Julio Jones, I just don't see how Atlanta's able to compete. I think five or six wins is realistic for them this year, even with Matt Ryan still there under center. And then you got the Panthers. Again, they're just not a very good team. I think five, six wins again is probably realistic for them. Last but not least, we have the NFC West, the Rams, with new quarterback Matthew Stafford, I think are clearly going to be the class of that division this year. That defense is insane. Aaron Donald leading the way. He's a monster. Matthew Stafford is going to make a very noticeable impact on that offense. He's probably, in my opinion, the most underappreciated quarterback of this generation. I can definitely see the Rams winning 12 to 14 games this year and being one of the top NFC contenders for the Super Bowl. Then you got the Arizona Cardinals, I think, are going to make another noticeable improvement this year. I can see 10 to 12 wins for them. The Seahawks, with Russell Wilson still there, they're always obviously going to be competitive as long as Wilson's there, but I just don't think they have the talent to be legitimate Super Bowl contenders or even contenders in the division this year. The NFC West, again, like the AFC West, is going to be a very strong, difficult division this year. I can see the Seahawks winning about 10 games, and again with the 49ers, I think about 10 wins is probably realistic for them. Jimmy Garoppolo coming back. We'll see how long it takes for them to switch over from Garoppolo to Trey Lance, the number three pick in this last year's draft out of North Dakota State. But that is it for today's show. Thank you all so much for tuning in to White Moss Talks. Hope you all enjoyed it. Catch you back here next week, same time, 3 Eastern, noon Pacific, with all the latest breaking sports news and coverage. Hope you all have a fantastic rest of your day and a fantastic week ahead, and I will catch you next time. Peace.